everybody and welcome to Shut Up and Sit Down, the podcast all about board games, card games, things that don't involve electricity and sometimes when they do. This is episode 29 and you are listening and that makes you one of our favourite people. That makes you complicit in this audio crime. That is also true. My name's Quentin Smith. I'm joined today in England by Mr Matt Lees in the studio. Hello in the studio. Makes us sound way more professional than we are. And far away in the frozen wastes and lands of... of of Iceland. Can- <laughs> is, it, is it Iceland? I couldn't come up with any funny ways to say Canada, which is weird because Canada is meant to be the funniest state. It, it, it's quite funny. It, it does sound really professional if if you're in a studio and I'm like on location and it's a thing. Oh, on location, still getting to the bottom of the mystery of where the Canadian <laughs> and now live are. from Canada is Paul. Is anything interesting happening over in Canada, Paul? At all? Anything? Um, I, I I can hear my neighbour coughing through the wall. Uh, are we we should definitely tell the story that in your Panamax review that just went live, I, I can't believe there wasn't a reference to this in your edit, but uh, just after you finished one of the shots, someone got tasered, if I'm not... If yes, I'm, uh, this is yeah. true. Um, in, in what was probably the most timid policing I've ever seen, because I'm, you know, <laughs> I associate North American policing with aggression, and we see all kinds of news coming out of America. In... in here in Vancouver, it was uh, some policemen really diplomatically attempting to deal with a hostile guy, d- trying to de-escalate something for quite a long time while I was shooting take after take just out of shot, <laughs> until eventually they deliberately fired a taser sort of away from him to say, we've got a taser, yeah. and he didn't do anything, and then they fired... You know, you, you see videos of people being tasered and they scream and it really hurts and they, they get really upset and uh, understandably yeah. i don't know if all tasers fire at the same sort of level or something but eventually they they did shoot it at him and he sort of didn't actually seem that badly hurt either i don't know if it was a low voltage thing but it was all and that they, they just sat down with him and talked to him <laughs> and it was just it was there was no drama and it felt like some police officers actually trying to de-escalate a situation and talk nicely to someone and explain that they couldn't be really aggressive to other people. Well, they did, they, they did still taser him, so I guess there's a degree of escalation. I mean, there. this is what I'm wondering. Like, if yeah. you know, it's a mild tasering, but you got to wonder what 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 state they are trying to get to with the tasering. <laughs> like, what is it that tasering has allowed them to do that that not tasering? <laughs> Listen, would... I'm just going to tase you a little bit, okay? Just I need to, to l- get you into the correct mind state of <laughs> fear. Once you're, you're tasered, right. we can have a cup of tea. Can I sit that? down? Imagine just shooting, like if your friends get really worked up or like having panic attacks, just taser them, then you can talk to them gently. I think it's a bit much, frankly. But yeah. hey, you know, I guess sometimes it's useful. Actually, for those people who haven't actually had a chance to see the Panamax video review yet, which I'm sure is hilarious because it's got a certain somebody pretending to be a boat captain, but perhaps people <laughs> who haven't seen the video review yet, um, like myself, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> really? I haven't had a chance yet. I'm going to watch it. It's good. It's, it's got... Paul I know it's with got a shirt off. It's I know. got you commanding a ship. It's got. Uh, I tell you what, it's got a board game that sounds an awful lot better than I thought it would be. That's the thing. It sounds like it ticks all of my boxes. Um, but I just thought you could maybe like uh, ease me into it, Paul, by telling me a little bit about what Panamax is like. Think of this as like a preview to your review, Paul. You know what? It's. Um, I I kind of described it as sort of the most laissez-faire board game. It's a board game where each player. Um, it's, the object of the game is to become the richest player by the end of the game, and I haven't actually played a game where that was the objective in a while. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you all control big shipping firms who move cargo back and forth through the ca- uh, Panama Canal, and you do contracts for people in Europe or China or East or West uh, United States. But your own finances are different to your company's finances, and there's kind of a bit of shrewdness in so far as you can buy stocks in each other's company or your own company. And it doesn't always matter maybe if your company is tanking slightly at the end of the game as long as you're making money. And there's so much that can be negotiated in terms of, like, you have your ships and you have your cargo, but the actual rules of the game are you can kind of put cargo on other people's ships and other people can move other people's ships. Yeah, this is the thing that sounds amazing to me, that I could load up Matt's massive ship with cargo, and then Matt has no interest in pushing it through the Panama Canal, except because there are only two channels, someone behind Matt will forcibly push Matt through the canal. This is the mechanic that I love, and this is actually a wonderful thing about, having done the review, I I thought I was going to be kind of on the fringe of, uh, you know, I, I really like it. And I thought I was going to be one of those people who was sort of in a niche saying, this is my kind of thing, but not everybody likes this. And I actually got really strong response from so many people saying, oh, I really like this. I wish it had been covered more. Why doesn't everyone enjoy it so much? Oh, I love love that when we do a review and it's like, no one's really talking about this game. Is it good? And we do the good review and then a gajillion people come out of the woodwork like tiny happy woodlice and say, oh, I love this game so much and I'm so glad people are covering it. It's even nicer when it's the designer or the publisher. That's like, because you simultaneously feel like you've done a good deed and also you have your taste confirmed by people yes. all over the world. I yes. love the idea yeah. that you you can be somebody who owns a shipping company but by the end of the game have largely given up on your own shipping company <laughs> and just be more heavily invested in somebody else's. There's an amazing bit in Paul's review where um, he talks about how you can spend your company's... Like, let's say you buy a load of shares in my company. I can then make a load of really unwise investments in terms of boats and things. So that when you say, <laughs> where are my corporate dividends? I'm like, oh, we don't have any we money. We don't have any money. That's kind of what happens. And that, that's an amazing thing is you... Do, the whole uh, stock market kind of minigame has an element of push your luck because if you are the company who's uh, who's got the highest share value at the end of one of the game's rounds, then you win a prize and that prize is actual money for you. However... Oh, okay. Oh, wait. So if people buy shares in my company, I get more money because I'm the person who persuaded them to invest, like, thematically? Uh, if, if you boost your own share value up, and there's a couple of things that can put your share value up, but the problem is the higher it is, the more money you have to pay to people. Which is oh no good God. for a company actually trying to, you know, make lots of So cash. It, it sounds like it actually says quite a lot about the nature of business and the fact that it's like, well done, you've been a great businessman, have an amazing personal bonus. And then <laughs> that person gets rich, well then the company then goes on to do quite badly. <laughs> but the person in charge is still really rich. There's sort of, yeah, there's a couple of things like this in the game where you just, you it feels like you are actually running a business and there's no reason why you can't <laughs> negotiate with people to say, you know, I... I mean, the rule book doesn't say anything, I think, about actually paying money to other players to get them to do stuff. But you could probably house rule that. Yeah. So there's, like, backhand. This reminds me of, like... Yeah, I, this is nice, because in so many games, you know, if, if I'm commanding an army, say, of, like, knights and goblins, I am that army. I'm not the guy commanding it. Like, I love that layer of separation, so maybe the, I'm losing the fight and my king just runs away from the battle, because, like... Yes, this distinction between the entity you're controlling and the person at the top of it is really cool. I just want to play a game where you're, where you're investing in goblins now. 
that would be and good. Then, and you have to be like, oh, where are the rental goblins you bought? They get, oh, they didn't make it out of the dungeon. <laughs> the well, intern goblins. Well, you that... don't get your deposit back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this reminds me of um, a game we've never covered on Shut Up and Sit Down, but a classic. I can't remember who makes it, but it's um, called Modern Art, and it's a really simple small oh, box game. Yeah. You played this one, Paul? No, I, I've always seen it around, and we never, we never had a chance to cover it, did we? No, we didn't. So, but it, the. The way it works is very, very simple and so clever. You're all art investors, and there are like you know six different made-up artists. I think there is, might be an addition with real artists hmm. or two games, one of which. I, never mind. The point is that let's say I buy this artist, uh, I buy one of his paintings that's on mm-hmm. the market that week, uh, because I've shown an interest in that artist. All work by that artist that he did before or in the future is now worth slightly more money. So the value of the items you're bidding for is only ever provided by the players. So let's say you buy some, you buy like a Jackson Pollock. If I then buy a Jackson Pollock, ah, oh, Jackson Pollock's hot. Then because it's worth something, other players will buy Jackson Pollocks. But if you invest heavily in Jackson Pollocks and no one else cares, it's worthless because you know you've shown that there's no critical landscape for Jackson Pollock. It's, it's bullshit. It's nothing. Which is a, at once a fun game and also like an indictment on the art scene. Yeah, nothing has any value except for what the collectors pay for it in the first place yeah so it which, sounds yeah. like there's the value of negotiation there as well where you could say to players come on if you and me get in on this we can make each other richer right which has to happen in the art world as far as you know two trendsetters or tastemakers going if it we both must do like, it, it yeah. must do if a couple of people say look if we both act like this is a really big deal then, <laughs> <laughs> then other people will you know yeah that is secretly how Charlotte Sit Down works as well. Yeah, obviously that's how it works. That's why I have a, uh, if you look around the studio here, um, it's covered in, in uh, original Monets. That's true, yeah. Mm. it's. Uh, I did wonder if you could get regular soundproofing, but I guess the Monets... No, I just sort of think well. to fill a room with Monets, obviously you do get more of an echo than you do with traditional soundproofing, but it's just a little bit more luxurious, you know? Yeah. It sounds it. It really comes through in sort of the silky tone of your voices. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to play Panamax after that manual, though. Like, yeah, we, we tried to play it originally. We sure a did long try to play it. Ago. And, Flashback. Uh, okay, are we going to act out what happened? Do uh, it. Yeah, Do it. so okay. you were looking at the manual. And I'm looking at the manual. You continued to look at the manual. Oh, this is a shit manual. And then after about an hour looking at the manual, you just swore again and went, fuck this. Yeah. And, and then, then end of flashback. End of flashback. Na, that was it. Na, na, na. Back to the present valid. day. That's an entirely valid response to that manual, though. Yeah, it was it, horrible. It was appalling. Like the, it, it's not that difficult a thing to just have. Like on page one, make sure you like refer to all the concepts in the game, and then page two, when I'm reading in detail about those concepts, then I know what they are. Whereas the way Panamax does it is, it presents concepts without explaining them, and the explanations yeah. are four pages later. You know what yeah. I keep thinking about with manuals in terms of what what could be better with manual design is. And actually, I think I saw, we saw it in one of the games we're playing today, and it wasn't a great manual, to be fair, but it had this little man popping up in between going, oh, blah, blah, and sort of explaining extra Yeah, rules. like little speech bubbles to the side. Yeah. I've, still, I've seen that in a lot of Czech games, like um, Galaxy Trucker and Space Alert and Dungeon Lords, whereby it'll have really sort of um, legalese almost rules, which mm-hmm. is great, because that's what you need. You need to understand exactly how the rule works. But then uh, little comic strip characters on the side being like, you may think this rule doesn't make sense, but yeah. don't worry, because, you know... I think, I think manuals need a lot more flavour. They need flavour boxes next to it just to explain what the rules are there for. Yeah. Because I always hated this at school. It'd be like, they'd say, oh, you need to remember this. And you go, well, what, what does it mean? Like, how does it... And it, until you actually were told how, why you had, 
why the, the facts existed. <laughs> it was sort of just meaningless data that you had to store yeah. in your brain. Yeah. And often what you fail to get when you're trying to learn a game, it's like a puzzle in itself of like trying to remember all these rules. And then suddenly it clicks into place. You go, oh. And you realise that the rules really are only ever just a system to facilitate a certain situation of yeah. being like, oh, so the aim is to do this. So you have to use these rules to try and do this. And even if you just had a little thing being like, hey, the aim of this is to control this so that other players can't do this. Yep. Then when you read back the rules, it'd be like, oh, it makes sense. Because if you understand the intention of, of why the rules exist, then actually understanding them is a lot easier. Yeah, no, for sure. I can't yeah, wait yeah. until manual. I really hope that manuals get better. I, that's the one thing at the moment. I think board games are exciting, but it's just, there shouldn't we shouldn't keep getting games where we open them up and get a manual like the one in Panamax. It's just... Yeah, it's, it's so appalling. And if that happens to be someone's first experience of the hobby, that turns them off the hobby for life, which I is... I still don't know what I'd do if, if I didn't have you to read manuals for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest, I, I even... But even I don't make it through 100% of games like Panamax. Like... In that case, we just had other games to review that were simpler, and I went, oh, Paul's got To be fair, didn't we play uh, Super Rhino instead? We played some Super Rhino, <laughs> which is, is a classic Dramatically game. easier. Have we ever talked about Super Rhino on the podcast? I think we did, yeah, okay. I think we did. We'll spare the people yet more Super Rhino. We did play um, uh, Faust, which was bad. No, not Faust. Operation yeah, Faust? Yeah, Operation Ooh, Faust, which I think we talked think about as well. Oh, we thought that was... Had some really nice ideas, but didn't quite work. I tried a bit of that at BGG Con, and I got a really good first impression. Yeah, just for people at home, if you don't know Operation Faust, and I think you probably wouldn't, because I don't even know if the full release is out yet. We've just been playing some early versions, which we don't usually do. But it looked cool. It's like this sort of coup-style thing, where you've got people in front of you, and you've got roles you can use, and you're trying to glom um, resources from the middle but players will steal them out from under you except in this case you're uh, allied forces trying to take Nazi works of art which may or may not be forgeries yes. And um, but no it felt the rules were incredibly uh, limp to us, we played it so long ago it's, it's going to be difficult for me to remember exactly what was tough about it but it just felt like the interplay between all the different roles and the way that resource collection worked and the way you would lose resources was um, was positively like boring at best and frustrating at worst. Yeah, it was a shame because it was thematically really, really cool. Oh, it was so good that the fact that some art was a forgery and some art was um, what's the word? Uh, degenerate. Genuine. Degenerate. No, oh, degenerate. Yes. Yeah, because it was oh, the whole yeah. Nazi thing, yeah. being like, oh, this has got some tits on it. <laughs> Naughty art. <laughs> Which was a lot of fun. It meant that there you were know, resources that were useless to some people, but useful to you, which was Yeah, great. but it didn't, it didn't click with us, sadly. But we've been playing a couple of good things today. We're going to talk about that now, or yeah, maybe... Ooh, let's on, let's tell me, just tell me. plow in like a... Like a plow. Yeah, I got a plow in one <laughs> You of did? Games. And I was annoyed because I didn't see the plow because I was trying to buy all of the things that you needed just to stop you from getting them. So, nine months late, I think, to the, to the party, and it is not an exciting party, but it is... Uh, it is a serious party. It's the party of nations. Uh, nations being the big box, big serious board game. Oh, it's, a, yeah. it's a functional and satisfying party. <laughs> full of people who appear to be unattractive, but end up being quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most accurate description. Yeah, Nations is one of these um, overwhelmingly po-faced uh, European-style board games where no one on the front of the box looks like they're having a good time. <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, and then you open up the box, and uh, I'm going to make fun of this in the review, but, like, okay, Paul. 
Hello. So you've got a game that's about uh, where players control civilizations and they, they travel through time. So, of course, you need different decks for different eras of invention, right? Um, different yes. decks of cards. So, of course, you've got like the sort of, uh, not prehistoric, but sort of like Iron Age and then Medieval and then Renaissance, then Modern. What kind of picture do you think you'd have on the front of each of those cards to, uh, to denote the four different ages? Uh, I would guess some kind of artifact from the age or some kind of general picture of the theme of the age. Like, you know, medieval era would be like, a, uh, it's stereotypical, but, you know, castles and Yeah, sure. Sounds good. And, Sounds good. You know, uh, a, a outside dream. Yeah. So shall I tell you what Nations does? Nations has a picture of uh, Florence Nightingale looking bored on all four eras. Oh dear. But depending on how, how far back through history you go, they remove all the colour from her slowly. Aww. As if sort of like she's ill and the colour is just draining from her face. It's a game that clearly struggles from an art budget perspective <laughs> for a number of reasons. Both in terms of they probably just went, well, we can't. We haven't got enough to do more art. And the quality of the art within the game is is very poor. I mean, it's not as poor as that um, the, the card game we played a while ago. I can't remember what it's called. I always forget the name of it. But the card game we played with the superheroes and Guardians. Oh, of Sentinels of the Multiverse. Sentinels of the Multiverse. Oh, my goodness. Uh, which, oh. which had some of the... the yeah, I mean, that was just... Uh, actually, it's, it's rare that like art quality actually diminishes your enjoyment or something. <laughs> but, my God, that was depressing. Um, but anyway, um, with this, it's just... It's a little bit clunky. But actually... Actually, it's not even clunky. It's just drab. When we open it's, it up, it's, drab. it's like oh, we just we just played another game before, which we'll talk about another time. But we just played something which was not drab at all. Incredibly it's... electric, exciting. The even the inlay had this yeah. made of exactly the same material as Nations, but it was printed and had like funny jokes on the inside. So we just gone from something which was a joy to pick up new cards just to look at them and, and laugh. Yeah, at the end them. of the game, we were just going through the decks, looking at cards we hadn't seen, laughing out loud, pointing stuff out to each other. Excitedly. And then Quinn's got out Nations, and I looked at the box, and it, it looked like uh, like it looked like everyone in the box had just been told that somebody they loved had died. <laughs> <laughs> Nations is the game that in a sitcom if you needed a character to get out you know sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hello, hello everybody we're going to play a board game now and if, if that's the board game they get out and then it cuts to footage of the protagonist trying to climb even out of the bathroom the pieces, window even the pieces <laughs> like the gold pieces like the, the numbers on the gold piece have a horrible drop shadow on the font <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you know what's crazy though is you say that like they didn't have much of an art budget but the thing is that game comes with so many wooden pieces like wooden meeples and discs and that's very expensive it comes in a huge box which is expensive well, to maybe that's why they didn't have much of an art budget well yeah it's I don't know. I think that, I, don't know. I think there is uh, like an ethos within board games that uh, within like sort of more traditional uh, board game designers uh, that art in general is because the, doesn't matter. The further historically back you go with board games, the uglier they get. Like this is just the art gets worse. The manuals get poorly laid out, and it's mm. only now. It's only in the last ten years that board games have started to look gorgeous again. So I think when games do come out of a sort of very traditional publisher, then they don't have either the the skills within the office or the intention to produce mm. good art. And to be fair, I get that because whilst when you got it out, I was like, oh, bloody, because it just looked like depressing. Um, but when, as soon as you started playing it, it immediately clicked. And then for the rest of the game, I just didn't, you didn't really, notice. I didn't yeah. notice at all. Like occasionally there'd be a, a drawing that was particularly bad that made me laugh, but largely you're just in the game, you're in the system, you're building cities, yeah. you're building like economies, and it's it's a great game. I yeah. really enjoy playing it. I mean, after the thing that actually made me dig it back out of our review pile and play it again was um, John Gilmore, who's the lead designer on Dead of Winter, said it was his favorite game, mm. and so I was like, okay, let's poke this. And the, basically the way it works is each age you have a sort of central shop of cards from that era laid out. And you have your board where you have um, slots, which actually has 
excuse me, pre-printed things on. So you've got like a spearman and a farm and a ziggurat. And then as soon as you buy cards from the market, they go into your sort of tableau of things you can use. Race for the Galaxy style pool. Um, the twist being, you always cover stuff up. From the very first card you buy, you have to cover something up. Um, so you only ever have five slots to put your workers on, your, your people, like in a worker placement game. And that just makes it ludicrously cramped, because you're always missing the ability to produce one resource. Uh, whether that's, you know, military or stone or gold. And then it's about other players trying to capitalise on that. Mm. Or, and knowing exactly when the correct time is right to remove your ability to produce something else. To go all in on something else. It makes every purchase not to buy a card that's a really tough choice and then as to where to place it is a tough choice when to move people off or onto it is a tough choice um if people had told me that rather than you can command a civilization across thousands of years i don't i don't care about that if you told me every decision in nations is incredibly difficult and very like rewarding or painful immediately i'd have i'd have taken a second look at that game that's a really easy idea to grasp as well. The idea that you, you've sort of only got five abilities at any one time or five things that you're good at. Yeah. So what are yeah. you going to swap in and out? Like, it ends I up being this, get that. It ends up being that you have to plan ahead as well of being like, well, you know, because you have an old building. You're like, well, I need to, I should probably try and upgrade that to better. And you see something on the market and you're like, that would be a great upgrade. But it means I won't then have any stone coming into my economy. Yeah. Do I have anything else? And then you have to take the, the gamble of being like, well, maybe I just go for it and then work out the stone situation later. Um, but it's... It, <laughs> Which it, worked it, out well for me. Yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> but what I love about it is the fact the shop has these three levels of cost. But it's not like uh, in some games where you have like, kind of like, oh, these are the expensive items, these are the cheap items, and they just keep getting circulated. Everything keeps shifting down, and it's all random, which means the value on the cards is just completely up to you. So yeah. sometimes you get things and you go, oh, that's a bargain. Other times you see something and you think, that is not a good price, but I, but it's exactly what I need. And you have this thing of the most expensive things next round will become worth a pound. I kept saying, I'll have that for a pound. And just like, <laughs> I don't know, I'll me for a pound, because I love, I love a bargain. But the problem is, if you if you leave it there and you think, well, I'll get it next time and it's cheaper, cheaper, somebody else might get, you know, the other person might get it or somebody else might get it. Yeah. Um, which made it, it really did feel like you were making, yeah, big decisions. And I, what I liked about it was that you were also tied into an economy. It wasn't like with some games where you just have to, okay, I'll buy that, I'll do this, I'll buy this. You felt like you had this ongoing commitment with the way that the population works. The idea is you can always be getting another meeple to add to your little your little worker pool, but each time you do that, you have quite substantial Penalty. uh, penalties. So it's like you can choose between food or stability, but it's this idea of basically like every time you take one, you can't put them back again. <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> you're expanding the size of your population, and with that comes a substantial cost, which you need to keep the upkeep for. So you have this thing of being like, Ah, I need you know. Mine towards the end, it's like I needed an income of nine food every round just to just for upkeep of my people, and you end up like building these. Uh, so you have this combination of you're trying to build this structural economy which is stable, whilst also doing other things and building new things, but at the same time. Um, you're constantly covering up buildings, which means you're like, well, I can't cover that up because I need that for my... Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It, it didn't feel... It felt like sometimes you really had to commit to things and I got a real degree of fear at points when I kind of had an idea of that I could just get rid of this building. But it's like, you can't get rid of that building. If you get rid of that building, then the people will starve. And yeah, like, and the, just the terrible cost of, by the end of the game, you've got these fantastic buildings that would save you from all your problems. Whatever problem you got saves you, except... The cost of um, putting, basically retraining your workforce to go from like, you know, uh, a mosque to 
of Zeppelin is yeah. <laughs> astronomical. <laughs> I like the way that stuff stays where it is as well. I mean, I don't know how rare that is in, in worker placement things, but I like that. Oh, yeah, no, it's extremely rare. So, uh, Paul, the interesting thing here is we've got a worker placement game where um, uh, uh, you have to place, you pay and you put uh, people on a card. There's actually a cost for that, and it's high. But at the end of the round, when you get the income from that space... Uh, the worker stays there, and you can always remove workers from spaces, but putting them onto new spaces is incredibly expensive. So you have the depressing thing of like, you know, are uh, these people manning my granary in the year, you know, in the 19th century isn't really that great, but, you know, the cost of, again, retraining them to be like musketeers is ridiculous. So it's less kind of worker placement, it's more worker commitment. Yes, absolutely. And uh, of course, you're not blocking people because you've got your own private tableau that you've built up. The thing I like that's also really good is um, in terms of interactivity, there's a load of really fun play from um, uh, a lot of interaction in the game being entirely relative. Like you can initiate wars, which are just really cute because you buy a war. You buy the Peloponnesian War and uh, um, and whatever your military strength is, which might be like, say, 19, which is ludicrously high. You then put the the war marker on 19 and it's really straightforward. Anyone at the end of the, the round who's below 19 military gets beat up by your war. But anyone who's above it doesn't get beat up by your war. So you don't target anyone, but also it means that it's not just a case of like, oh, there's some... Like in Kingsburg, for example, which is a weird example to pick, but in Kingsburg... Um, you know, oh, there are goblins coming, and it, the game decides that four is the number. Okay, whatever. But no, in, uh, in Nations, it's interesting because we decide what the number is to beat. Like, mm. we decide. And it's similar with um, books, which is this bizarre resource. If, you're, if you're, uh, your nation can produce books, and then if you have more books than other players, you get an amount of victory points depending on how many other players there are. But this is entirely relative. If Matt has three books and I have... Uh, four, then I get a victory point. But if I have four hundred books and Matt has three, then I've wasted my time and still only get one victory point. It's it's cute. There's in there's play. Your your numbers and your bars are bouncing up and down. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, you don't actually get a dramatic number of victory points. And I think what I often find a bit depressing about um, uh, serious Euro games can be the point that you've got this victory tracker, and if the people are winning, are just soaring off ahead of it. It's like you sort of think, unless you've got a big plan in place. You're just shafted, and you kind of know that. Whereas in this, I like the fact that you know you had like tons more books than I did, but it wasn't really worth that much. And I had a, like towards the end, I had a, an army that was like huge compared to yours. But again, didn't really matter. Didn't really matter <laughs> because it's like you know, it's whenever there's a war, it's like oh, well, you know, you get affected by the war, but you don't get affected like worse by the war, depending on whether you have a small army or a big army. It's just is is your army big enough? No. All right. Well then. War's going to give you a bad time. Matt and I are also in a really good mood about nations because after sweating and, and thinking so hard and just straining over this table for two and a half hours, we both came out on 37 victory points apiece. So, I've got to say, though, I didn't... I didn't not, isn't that nice? I didn't feel the big strain. I didn't feel like... It, 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 wasn't, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't ludicrous. It doesn't create a machine like in the way that you, you can get because I think because of the overlap, it means that you don't end up creating this massive sprawling thing it's always quite a small you only thing. ever really have like five cards to think about yeah right? so it's just a case of you always have plans but I like that a lot of it was in flux like you know I kept planning for war and then there weren't any wars to buy in the shops yeah. and it's like well I can't buy a war that's <laughs> nightmare so then I, at the start of the game I was half expecting it to be like I was, I was just going to go for pure like stability peace and just forget about the wars and just take it on the chin basically and not be 
a warfare. Yeah, that was that was so funny. And I and I thought like I got in the first era Alexander the Great and some chariots, and I was king of the wars. Yeah, and then suddenly I like actually it's probably a good idea for me to get into war this turn. So I just went nuts for it and just and, went super. War. And at that point, yeah, I just went, oh okay, he's gone nuts. I have no interest. All my chariots were disbanded, and for the rest of the game, I had no soldiers and got beat up by the nation of Greece. I love the element of random stuff as well. That the um the way that you have something every round which is going to cause you grief or fortune. You know, the, oh, events the events of being yeah. like, oh, if you've got the best military, then you'll get this bonus. Or if you've got the worst military, then you'll get this penalty. Yeah. And the fact that you don't know what those criteria are going to be until after you've made quite a big set of commitments for what you're going to do with the next round in terms of your economy and stuff. There's a fun amount of luck and surprise and, uh, and yeah, just numbers jinking about in ways you didn't expect. But I, I kind of like the way that it doesn't really encourage you to specialise too much. It didn't really encourage you to be like full war or full peace and learning yeah you you stay flexible and you have to react depending on what your friends do which is great for a euro game yeah you don't have a machine and well, that, I mean a lot of the best ones tend to try and do that they they you know they encourage you to try and spread your bets or your investments because you you know you want to be able to cover every base yeah and uh, and it's 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 funnier than this. It, there's an amount of flexibility and inflexibility all at the same time, and in surprising, exciting ways. It's kind of like bondage, but yeah, but, <laughs> but so much less sexy. At least well, I was going to say. So it sounds like you were, although the first impressions were quite dour. Um, uh, no, it, it's really really strong. It's it great. It's, it's really good fun. Um, it, it's a lot of fun to play, and it's it's got a lot going for it. I do like the fact that. You can be incredibly flexible at any point, but the flexibility you have is just completely down to your wealth, and it's to do with like the number of resources you've got. If you've got loads of money and you've got loads of stone, which basically stone is what you end up spending to deploy people and workers and redeploy them, whereas money is what you buy from the shop. If you can get yourself a huge amount of that, then at the drop of a hat halfway through the game, you can just scrap half your buildings <laughs> and just like re- completely redesign your empire. Yeah, and it's that idea of like you're investing money in retrofitting your empire but I also love that you've got this whole juggling of you know when you take someone off one thing and put them on something else you have to then work out how that's going to affect your economy are you going to be able to feed your people like are you going to have your whole nation being thrown into disarray at a point at which you need it to be stable it's a really fun juggling game but it's it's kind of stressful because it feels like you've got consequences but I like that it's not just that you you don't just feel like you're constantly just making numbers go up you do feel like you're trying to do the best you can and trying to earn victory points uh, whilst also kind of trying to keep this mad bunch of horses tied together. Yeah. <laughs> the Euro economy does want to run away in hilarious ways. Like, you know, Paul, and usually with Euro games, you, um, you struggle and you sweat and the result of all that is you get like a wood and a stone. Yeah. Um, with nations, it's it's ridiculous because you won't even notice. You'll be sweating and trying, just desperately looking for stone anywhere. And maybe you get a little bit, and then at the end of the turn, you you tally up what you get. And it's like, hang on, I just made seventeen gold. Where did that come from? It is like a wild horse bolting in a in a direction that is not at all unpleasant. And then it's like, oh, at least maybe I can do something with seventeen gold. No, okay. Um, but it, it's a really interesting contrast because we actually played Imperial Settlers today as well, um, yes. just before Nations. And this Friday I'm going to do a video comparing the two games because they are very different, but also I, they're similar enough that I categorically think you don't need to own both, uh, okay. at least not right now, unless you're super into it. But Imperial Settlers is like it's small box. It's, it's such a weird counterpart because it's very similar mechanics in that you're buying cards that you can then put workers on. Um, but 
uh, it's also like so sexy, so colourful, so bright, so funny, and uh, so flavourful immediately and understandable. Like it's just this joyous, bouncing cartoon. Uh, I'm realising now I'm regretting using that particular descriptor and also the word sexy. I was kind of going to question that. Well, we're going to move on. and <laughs> we're gonna... Sexy little tiny cartoon barbarians with their tops off. Uh, there are no tops off. There are. There are the are barbarians. There? My barbarians in the fighting pits. I mean, they were men. Okay, yes. Little chubby barbarian topless men. Barbarian Poor, men so are, known, beautiful. are known for being topless. Have it's you seen? Sexy. Have you seen it up close? Have you got a chance to go through the cars and stuff yet, Paul? Uh, I saw people playing it, and I, I was next to people playing it, and it did visually look pretty cool. And it certainly had. Uh, I think there were sort of very limited copies around, and it certainly had people grabbing it whenever they could. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the tiny details that you really get though. From afar, it looks quite nice, but it's the little tiny details, the little people on the cards, the little details in the illustrations. It's so cute. Like it's um, you know, you'll get a card which is like a sort of I don't know, like a candy shop basically, or like a confectioner's is what they call it and it's a very high level food and if you have lots of food you can spend food for victory points but um you watch it and it's just this beautiful like like you want to put it in your mouth and eat it building and then there's a the guy who owns the candy shop outside and he's giving some kind of weird medieval sweets to some kids and then the, the flavor you then get where matt you're just admiring this car that you've just built and matt's like Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise your candy shop, <laughs> and you're like what? And then, then thematically, like you just know the barbarians have come over and torched it, and you flip the card face down, and he takes the food away, and now his barbarians are eating candy. Like the stories it tells are effortless, and yeah, it reminded me a lot of King Ludwig in a way, just because it kind of felt like uh, what I was putting down in front of me was was telling a story mm. that I was really enjoying and also how I was affecting you was telling a story yeah. the fact that I was just creating this barbarian camp oh god I love I was horrified that uh, because yeah Paul the thing being um, there are four different uh, sort of like races not races I guess races civilizations out of the yeah. box yeah. Uh, Japanese uh, Egyptian Roman and barbarian and we didn't really know going into it what their specializations were. And so, you know, I slapped down the Roman thing and Matt sits down in front of barbarians. And then we realized in the very first time, and here's how you take your income, that Matt didn't have really any income aside from just a shit ton of people. I have people. And then Lots his, of people. his first two cards that he builds are like a, vill- a barbarian village that increases his people income. And then another barbarian village. And so he's just bored. Is quite literally covered like, <laughs> spilling over with these tiny bright pink yeah. people at the start of every turn I get to pour my income onto the board and it's just people yeah but that, and it that was... was your individual thing yeah sort of I mean it seemed like there was a, the barbarians were more obvious in that in terms of like they 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 get more people so you can do things with people people are good they're quite flexible you can do a lot of things <laughs> well, they're with basically them. yeah they're workers that you can then send to uh, to um other uh, places but immediately it is it is more aggressive than a worker placement game what we realised is that with two players you don't really see this but raising other people's um, cards is a very large part of the game and it's not a massive setback but it's a small one mm. and uh, and we realised in a three or four player game it's a worker placement game with finally like just a very clear path to beating up that friend of yours who's smarter than everyone yeah. else the problem I had is I was well the problem we had was I was sort of running away with it as a barbarian yeah. and in a two player game there wasn't really a lot you could do about that mm. but if there was more people then everyone would have just been bullying me which is great like when was the last time we played a Euro game where like I mean sure you can it's like oh Rob really wants that space we'll take that space from oh he won't like that but this is like no I'm burning Rob's house it's I'm burning yeah. all of his houses that's it He's like, too smart. It's instead of 
like you know, it's always like in that's kind of what I don't like about worker placement stuff sometimes where it feels like when you're trying to stop the person from winning, you're just being passive aggressive. You're just yeah, like all you're trying to do is direct or something. And you're not helping yourself. Whereas in this, the benefits for raising a village are just resources, which are yeah. hugely useful. You so get stuff. So you're you very much encouraged to beat other people up. Yeah, so you go, Well, I'm gonna stop that and then I'm gonna get some good stuff for it. Uh, and obviously I was a barbarian, so I was having a great time raising things. <laughs> but it's really cute the way it works is you have your little kind of central column of cardboard, which is where you have your little rules and your for your little race. And then there are two types of cards, like the general building cards, which are just like normal ones that anyone can pick up. And then you have your specific kind of ones for your like race. They so go on like, the left of the board. They go on the left. So you have like these two different halves of the settlement. So you have like kind of, with mine, it was like on uh, left side, I had these sort of dark, muddy kind of cute little barbarian camps and barbarian settlements. Whereas on the right, I had more traditional things like, you know, farms and, uh, you know, a, a place where I was growing lots of apples. And and it was really nice with mine. It didn't make as much thematic sense. But I loved it with the Romans because it meant that Quinn's was... Because the important thing is, is the things you build on the left, the things you build which are class specific, um, you, you can't raise them. Like, you can't... They can't be destroyed. Yeah. It's like the idea of, like... Anything you use on the right, the general stuff, is what you use to as part of your economic machine, but it comes and goes. Yeah. And you end up like recycling that stuff in order to make your, your race stuff, your main stuff. Yes, yeah, so the main uh, hook in it that's very interesting is in order to build one of your expensive, very good class-specific buildings, part of the building cost is killing something on the right side of your board. And it's weird, but it really reminded me of Triple Town. I said this at the time. It reminded me of Triple Town, which is a kind of a phone game. Like I used to play it a lot on my Android. I think it's on iPhone as well. Yes. But this idea of being like building things, building things in a very specific way, being very proud and happy with how you've done that, but then also being aware that inevitably what you've made will then be destroyed, so you can make <laughs> something better. Like this idea of being like, I built that. That's brilliant. But now it's time for it to be rid it off so I can build something that's better yeah um, it's uh, it's clever for a couple of reasons one of which being it allows the because uh, if you just let players build like crazy then um, you're going to get a, a problem where the player's holdings are too large too sprawling covered in your head with this it actually works in a couple of ways the first of which being you can build lots and that's very exciting but it never gets sprawling because you're throwing it away as well Yeah. but also and we saw this back in the day with incredible game Race for the Galaxy which Shut Up and Sit Down still categorically recommends um, but Race for the Galaxy, the currency in which to play cards is paying cards out of your hand. If you mm. want to uh, build a, a pleasure planet that costs three, you've got to throw away three cards from your hand. But those three cards in your hand are like a murder planet and the biohazard box. And I t- poor, poor... totally throw away a murder planet to get a pleasure planet. Yeah, that does make sense. Paul, give me something else from Race for the Galaxy. Well, uh, I was going to say runaway robots or... Um, there you go. Yeah, uh, um... No, that's a bad example. Runaway Robots. No, Runaway Robots is perfect. You guys are weird. I'm sticking with the Pleasure Planet. Uh, But you throw all these things away, but the thing is, those are all options you're throwing away, which actually makes it a very Mm. interesting decision. And similarly, with Imperial Settlers, hey, guess what? Of course, Imperial Settlers is actually based on a game called 51st State, which was based on Race for the Galaxy. But um, that's nerdy knowledge that nobody needs to know. Not it's even good me. though. It encourages. It sounds like it encourages, uh, you know, efficiency. Like you're constantly kind of paring down. Yes, it's bizarre because um, oh god, the <laughs> there are only five rounds in the game, and each round you only get three cards. So you'd think it would be um, uh, very, very, uh, very quick, not very satisfying. But essentially, the bullshit that you do <laughs> to try and scrape together your your land. So you'll build a lookout tower. And then that'll let you draw two cards. And then you'll set fire to the lookout tower to get the stone back. And then you'll use the stone and the remains of the lookout tower to uh, 
to build a house. Yeah, there. you can you can really do some fun chaining stuff, especially because you start to realize that some buildings, some buildings are there as part of an ongoing machine. Like you have this, and then you can like put people in every round to get stuff for you. But some of them are just like one hit, so you put them down. And, and then, then you're very like, much encouraged to burn them. You get a bonus, but then it's like, great, because it means you do that, you get your bonus, and you go, well, that is like, first on the list of things that's going to get destroyed and turned into one of my better class buildings. But I just love the fact that when I was the Barbarians, it was this thing of like, you were the Romans, and every time you built, uh, everything you built behind your big Roman walls, all of your all of your official Roman buildings, your, your great marketplaces, your sculpture gardens and all this stuff, yeah. they were all untouchable by the Barbarian hordes. But every time you <laughs> built... Every time you built, Any a time nice, I built anything, I think the uh, a nice the, new farm. The, uh, towards the end of the game, I pinned all of my hopes and dreams <laughs> on uh, on, a, on a card that just read "Hacking Troop," and it's the dumbest thing. It's like most of the cards have like a building on or something, um, but this one is just a crossroads, and standing in the middle of the crossroads is like a tiny, cute little juggler and a little clown. Yeah, the acting troop turned up and uh, immediately were set upon by barbarians. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm killing burn. your acting troop. Yeah, you which was actually that, really... The whole thing oh. reminds me, I don't know why, but it reminds me of Asterix in that way, in that sort of... Oh, it's, it's we so said exactly the same thing when we saw the art. It's it's very Asterix, very sweet and bloodless in a nice way. Yeah. But simultaneously slightly edgy. Like, yeah. Asterix always had a lot of kind of like jokes that went over the heads of some of the kids reading it, but... Mm. Uh, but um, And this kind of has a similar thing. I think uh, what I what I really liked about it is um, the, the very diff- big difference between this and um, Nations is in Nations it felt like it was kind of stressful because Nations you felt like you had a lot of responsibility and it felt like if you like wiped over something if you destroyed a building that you didn't need anymore to build a new one and then realised that you just balked half of your economy there was <laughs> there was very little like there were very little opportunities then for you to just get some more stone oh well speak for yourself because I knew I was Imperial Settlers does have a very classic Yorgo problem, maybe because it was only two player, and you'd be able to burn people's shit more if it was three players. But I very much felt like I was behind you, and I had that awful Eurogame thing where you know every turn I'm probably gonna lose this, I'm probably gonna lose this, I'm probably gonna mm. lose this. I've lost this, which meant that for me every decision was really painful. Nah, and I just felt like it was more that um, you could shift and move about a bit more. So you could be like, okay, I'm I'm gonna do this now, or like, you know, oh, if I really need like, if the, like, I need a few times, I need, I think I need, just need a piece of wood, and I think I don't have any ability to make wood because I haven't invested in it. Just being able to raise, just being able to get rid of one of your own cards and be like, that that card's got some wood in it. I'm just gonna bin that card just to get some wood. Yeah, it's not efficient, but I like the way that it, it felt like in terms of being stuck. Sometimes with the resource games, if you if you make bad decisions, you just get into a position where you go, I can't do anything. It felt like in this, it's like you end up being like, well, this isn't optimal, but I, at least I can do this. And I also like the, the way that I could kind of choose whether or not to be like, at one point I was just being super peaceful. And I was like, I like the fact that with the barbarians, he got all these nice things like, oh, it's a meeting place. Oh, it's like, they're, it's a bartering. They've all got rugs out. And then it's being like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going full. <laughs> now I'll go back to the murder. Yeah, just being like, just just trashing all of my nice peaceful places and turning my city into just a barbarian murder. Oh, city. that was that was funny. We um, There was a turn where we were looking at, the, you have a little shop phase when you all draft cards at the beginning of each round. And it was like round three or four, and we flipped a card that just read, gallows and like it the game had been so <laughs> calm and chill and friendly for the whole thing and then we put this piece of art which is like a crossroads and on the crossroads crossroads is like a sort of crane and in the crane is a cage and in the cage is a poor civilian and we look at it and the text on the card reads every time you raise a settlement gain a victory point and there was a brief moment of i remember this 
Mm. <laughs> Someone's going to buy this and the game's going to get a lot meaner this Maybe turn. it will be the Barbarians. Yeah. So, so here's creepy. a question. Are, are any of the um, any of the sides that you can pick any better at attacking people than any of the other sides? It's hard to tell. And actually, the one uh, bit of DNA that I did recognise from, um, uh, I think, Portal games in general, because we've looked at a few. We, well, I've played 51st Day, and then we've looked at... Um, uh, I also looked at Legacy, and I also we we played uh, what's it called Theseus, mm. and all of these games from this um, Polish publisher tend to have one thing in common, which is they tend to be quite obtuse. They tend to be difficult to immediately get into and see exactly how to play and what you're doing, and it tends to take a few plays to exactly learn yeah. what on earth is going on. And from going through the races uh, in uh, in. Imperial Settlers, it was just difficult to see what any one race... We thought we had it. It's like, oh, well, the Romans have to build things. Wait, no, that doesn't make sense. The barbarians have loads of people, so maybe they raid. No, maybe they I think the Romans were supposed to be attacking more. Well, I, I've been through the deck and I know, which is, this is the thing. We because play... you had the ability to, to hold swords, that's the thing. Because uh... each race it has the ability to, to stockpile one resource. One of the things that I thought was quite clever and quite neat is the fact that, yeah, you only have five rounds, but it gets this point of, like, you can have as many turns as you want. So it becomes this sort of like clever juggling of orders. And it becomes like, you know, I like that element of like a really good card game of you go, ha, I've got a combo here. I can do this to this. And you go, this, 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 this. And it felt like it just skirted on the right side of being not too overcomplicated that when we got to the end of the game, I was still enjoying the puzzle rather than having it just having turned my brain to mush. Yeah, Um, yeah. But at the same time, everyone can store one resource. So you have this thing of like, you end up being... Not just trying to be efficient in terms of getting the most points and not really concentrating on how many points you're earning in terms of winning the game, but just being like making sure that you were you didn't have any more resources left at the end of the turn. Because if you had like a couple of bits of wood and some stone at the end of the turn and didn't have anything to do with them, then that was a waste. Like yeah. you you should have done something with that. It's and a- so I was you were always trying to like get that clean slate, and I think that's really satisfying. It's like in a card game when you can like get rid of yeah. all that moment of being like. Yeah, I've neatened everything. I love that in games. It's uh, it's funny, isn't it? It's almost like every turn you just get a splash of gasoline in, in your engine and you just got to use it all to use it to get more, to use it to get more, to use it and I'm running out and I'm spent except for one apple and I can't use the apple. And I love, the, I love the way you can end up being really inefficient though of actually going, well, I need a bit more money so I'll burn these cards to get a bit more stuff. So, you know, I'll burn these two cards to get the resources I need to finish this. But then it's like, well, you just used all your cards. Like, you're not going to get many more cards like next <laughs> yes, turn. Yes, God. So it's like it was one of those things where you can go off on these crazy combos, but they're not infinite. And eventually you will hit a wall and that will slow you down for some time. But the barbarians could stockpile people. So it meant that if I had people left over at the end of the turn, I get to carry them through to next turn. And uh, the Romans could stockpile swords. I think the Egyptians were money. I can't recall. But I, I like that, this idea of like, so I guess... If you'd found a way to do it, you would have just been able to like start sitting on this large collection of swords, and that wouldn't have worked too well in the um, in what we were doing in terms of the um, the two player game. But I, I think that would have had a really interesting mechanic in uh, more players because it would be this thing: if you were the Romans and you were just sitting on like six swords, which in this game is loads, <laughs> no one's going to mess with you. Like it, it's just like no one's going to attack you. Like, I mean, because that's a because if people would be like, "Well, I'm going to attack you," you'd be like, "Are you?" Because if, <laughs> if you attack me, I'm going to raise like. Or everything you've got. Every board game I've ever played where someone has tried to threaten that or be the. Do you remember when Laurie tried to be a proper terrorist and hold the whole table to the yeah, like, but... played City of Horror? That was it just, just results a... in the entire table ganging up in that we yeah. have negotiate. Oh, with. God, yeah. When you think you're in that position of power and it sort of topples over. And you back try and onto hold you. the whole table to ransom. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work. So uh, it's, it's kind of moderately asymmetrical. 
Pleasantly so, yeah. Okay. You have a whole unique deck of cards that's yours and it has beautiful art. And I noticed that in a, one of my cards, which was the Roman headquarters, there's a little legion of a 3x3 three three stack of Roman soldiers. And then I noticed in the background, the chickens and sheep in the art are also in a nice 3x3 three three square formation. Uh, and it's it's just full of that. It's full it is of gorgeous. Tiny, beautiful um, touches. I think it's really funny, though, with the Sioux games, though, because I think that... Um, I found that like Nations was more complex in terms of having more things to follow. Like it had a lot of variables. You know, you've got books, gold, stone. You've got all these different Stability, resources. War. You've got lots of markers that move up and down. But actually, the actual puzzle of the game, in terms of like working out how to be efficient and stuff, there wasn't actually that much to it, and it didn't let you go off down this crazy rabbit hole of like Combos. juggling stuff and comboing stuff in your yeah. head because it was always quite. Um, it was always quite reactive. It well, was always like you know, but then at the same time, like yeah, there was. A- we weren't playing with the uh, the ridiculous advanced and expert cards in Nations. Yeah, so maybe it does get like that. I think both games might have an awful lot of depth, which I'm curious to uh, to poke a little more before the review. I do want to move on, but only because Paul's played a game that I was excited to play for a while, uh, which is Paul. You played Apocalypse World, didn't you? I have. I've been playing. Uh, I've been doing some internet role playing actually with those uh, bored with life people on the internet. I do love we, a bit of bored with life. Uh, I do love a bit of internet, and we, <laughs> we internet each other, and uh, it actually works really quite well remotely because there isn't a huge amount of dice rolling or sort of you know shuffling stuff around between each other. But um, uh, yeah, apocalypse. <laughs> that sounds world. naughty. Shuffling stuff around between it's, each it's other. Not, it's not naughty, Ooh, Matthew. It's, it's Mr. Not. Dean. It's it's not. Um, it's the wait. We, hang on, we, that can't be right because Apocalypse World is a tremendously naughty game. With the uh, we, because this is the um, the yes. parent game of Monster Hearts, right? <laughs> yes. We we reviewed Monster Hearts and had an amazing time. This is a game by uh, Avery McDaldno, and it's uh, it's this wonderful game of teenage monsters where the monsters all kind of represent a different sort of uh, sort of problem that teenagers might be encountering, whether it's drugs or loneliness or anger issues or God knows what else. Um, but it, all the systems in it come from Apocalypse World, right? Which is, that a, is this correct. post-apocalyptic game. But yeah. it also it also has the same sex powers as Monster Hunt, Monster Hearts, right? Where your class has a sex power that you can use if you do a sex on a person. Yeah, it has a lot of things that are that are similar, and or, or that you can see that it inherited. Um, and it's very much a role playing game that is uh, that wants you to pay attention to the links between the characters and how they can perhaps influence one another, or how they are tied to one so, another, or how they know things about one another and can sort of um, what's the word I want? Sort of, I want a better word than influence, but you know, uh, manipulate. manipulate. Yeah. So you're telling me, Mr. Paul Dean, that you've been using sex powers on board with life, and that's not naughty? They've Actually, it's more that they've been trying to use them on me. I think it's still naughty, Paul. Did they succeed? Because it's, I think it's very important in, uh, in this specific uh, series of role-playing games that you, know, you don't necessarily resist these impulses if, you, if, if your character is turned on by someone else in the game. Well, you know were, what? Were you turned I, on? It's funny. It's funny talking about something like this because it's. Um, I mean, the podcast will be coming out soonish in the future, and uh, naturally, they will be, as the North Americans say, they will be R-rated for content. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Well, then, what I want to know, if you don't want to spoil what happened in the game for the sake of the podcast, is. Uh, I've glimpsed through the book, but the thing I find amazing about Apocalypse World, uh, in theory, 
is that Apocalypse has been done to death for me. You know, like this sort of theme yes. that you see a lot in, say, the Fallout video games, this kind of like borrowing some of the spikes from Mad Max and none of the interesting artistic decisions in that film. Um, and uh, then deserts and there's not much water and probably the car you drive is rusty. And like, there's a lot of these tropes which I find tremendously boring. Um, but Apocalypse well, they are World... A bit. Well, sure, but Apocalypse World, it sounded... Everything I know about it and everything anyone's told me about it makes it sound like a fascinating apocalypse to be in. Uh, did you find this? Uh, I did, very much. Partly because uh, our, our whole first session was just world-building. It was just very much... Um, uh, you know, the way that you even play when you play together is somewhat collaborative, whereas, uh, you know, you have kind of a GM who is one person who guides the story... But um, you kind of work together to shape the story and shape the scenes, much like we did in Monster Hearts. But we did that even with our world building. When can, we you played... talk... can you explain your apocalypse or would that be going too far? No, I can. I, I can give a highlight of it because I'm, I'm kind of quite proud of what we put together and I'm surprised at how well it turned out. When, when we played Monster Hearts, we played in a standard kind of teenage schoolish setting. But with yeah, I said it in Cornwall, which I think is pretty elaborate and exciting. <laughs> But I mean, who yeah, knows? well, it's that's unusual. Um, yeah, but there's, there's, you know, there's certain familiarities to being a teenager in Britain, I guess, in a particular period. Um, this time we started, I think, pretty much with with a very blank slate, and basically um, worked out that we lived in a post-apocalyptic world where skyscrapers were still inhabited. Because the higher up you live in this world, the higher class person you are, the healthier life you have, and the less kind of smog there is. There's some kind of cold fire burning, horrid gas smog. Oh, that's pretty good, Paul. Yeah, it it's, it sticks to the ground, and you, you you know it's almost as if the ground has become an ocean of uh, toxic, horrid stuff, and you fly between different skyscrapers, or you. My character flies airships between different skyscrapers, but all the skyscrapers are horribly modified. So whereas they used to be a hundred stories tall, you know, in our time, they've hum they've often grown to maybe three hundred. They have all kinds of stuff bolted on. Occasionally they're wired together and you can zip line between them. Oh, but that is fantastic. Different skyscrapers are different like civilizations and even different floors are different gangs or groups of people. And we've lost all context for um what things are called. So we just name people or organisations after old brands. So we just have people <laughs> who are named after crisps because they, they've read it somewhere and they think it's cool that somebody is called Doritos. They think or like the people who are in, or the people who are in like the Sony building are like the Sonys. That is really It's a bit good, like though, that, yeah, yeah. But but within that it's still a framework for sort of interpersonal politics and a bit of sexual tension. Um, all done in a very consensual way. So what's your class exactly? You fly airships, but what's your class? Because the, the classes in Apocalypse World all drive me crazy as well. Uh, I'm a driver, basically. Uh, that's, the least, that's probably the least exciting. It might the be the least exciting. In, in a general post-apocalyptic post context, it would be the most Mad Maxy thing. It's just like, oh, well, what's the sex power of a driver? Um, well, I'm, I'm quite sharp. I'm. I'm. I don't want to give too much away right now, but I'm. I'm sharp and good with my hands and good at sort of getting out of trouble. Jesus um, Christ! So your sex power is benefiting people. You have. I don't even want to think about this. Evasion. I, I guess. I don't know. We've. We've. 
there's been there's been sort of some flirting and tension, but uh, there's there's it's felt like there's been a lot more sort of politics so far, which I've actually quite liked. Well, the thing personal politics. I ask about the classes because the one that made me like lose my mind a bit in terms of like you know if you play D anD D, you can get so set in your mind as to what a character can be, but then I'm flipping through Apocalypse World, and um, one of the one of the classes is like mayor. And it's like, you know, what's the specialties of a mayor? Well, he has a town full of people. And you're, you are responsible, but also controlling of however many hundreds or thousands of people within the campaign. And that's just what your character does. That's your power. That's, that's who they are. A leader or not, of, or responsible or not, for all these people. We do have someone like that in the game as well. And again, without giving too much away, they, they already seem a little bit sort of browbeaten by their responsibilities. And my character has probably the least... Um, responsibilities he's a very independent guy and he largely sort of works for himself like a freelancer and it's interesting seeing another character who is actually in charge of an entire floor of a skyscraper and just trying to hold all these things together and seems permanently exhausted because of it so you keep saying I don't want to give too much away I'm assuming this is this is no, that's fine, but <laughs> I'm, terrible, I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming this is all coming together as part of something bigger it is, and that's the other thing, is there's clearly a narrative that our GM is nudging us towards. And no, 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 no. I mean, I want to know, I want to know, like, how, how you keep where, saying... Where can people see this? Where can I find out all, all the things? You keep saying, I can't tell you this. Like, well, where, oh. how can I find out? Oh, well, the best thing to do is there is a, a Twitter account called Houses and Humans, which is uh, constantly be, being retweeted by, I think, Donald Schultz and generally bored with life. So if you know... Any of those people, or me on Twitter. So, who are houses with humans? Uh, houses and humans are basic. What, as in, who's our group? No, as in, what? It, what is the body that is doing this podcast, or whatever, or this broadcast, or whatever it is? I think it's an, basically an extension of Donald Schultz's body. It's like a particular <laughs> a, a limb of his that is like his. So tongue. it's so it's going to be a podcast that we I, we can listen. I can listen to. I mean, I'm saying this as if I'm asking it for the third person for the people who are listening, but actually, I am <laughs> mainly <laughs> asking for myself because because I yes, genuinely want to know the answers to these things. Okay, houses and humans. Okay, and I'll humans. look it up. Or find uh, the very the very handsome Donald Schultz on Twitter, and, and I I'll think s- the board with Life Twitter yeah. account is going to be retweeting it as well. Uh, well we've already recorded yeah. a couple, but they've not actually been released yet because I think uh, editing is happening. Which- well, it's a it's a relief to me that you don't want to talk about your sexual relationships with board with Life, not because you feel embarrassed, but because you feel it's locked under some sort of embargo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I look forward to hearing more about it. And my own personal time. Paul had... Thank uh, you. Thank you for your interest in my sexual embargo. Paul, I had the most fun having sex with Paul in Monster Hearts. Do you remember that, Paul? Do you remember you and Teacher? I remember that. The rug. Around the table, and one of the people around the table was someone that I'd not met before, not known very long, so that was a good way of introducing myself to them. Oh, Oh. yeah, I remember that was actually... I just had a weird memory, yeah. um, Italy, my current girlfriend, and uh, there was another girl around the table who were... Faux fanning themselves at our sex scene, so I think you and I. I don't I can think feel. it was faux. No, neither do I. Um, emails now, and uh, Peter Ferguson writes in with a folk game for us to talk about uh, briefly before we wrap really this like podcast up like a steamy burrito. Uh, hi, shut up and sit down. Peter from Canada, home of maple syrup hockey and foreign board game reviewers. In grade seven, brackets, nineteen eighty seven. I went to, <laughs> so we have to assume that everyone uh, in this story is on cocaine. 
Uh, I went to a weekend outdoor camp with my school. About 30-ish kids went. We lived in two large cabins and partook in outdoor activities such as skiing, uh, snowshoeing, na- snowshoeing, nature walks, etc. Uh, we played various party games as Broken Telephone, etc. Uh, another game I thought I would mention in a similar vein and one that we were anticipating playing because we'd heard about it from kids in the previous year was a game called The Hunger Games. No. Uh, was a game called Predator or The Predator Game. And no, it wasn't, quote, that Predator In the Predator game, uh, this is not going where you think it is, ladies and gents, Uh, (laughs) the students are separated by gender. It's really not going where you think. Each person is given an animal card. There was a moose, deer, fox, squirrel, rabbit, weasel, and so on. I believe there may have been a few wolves, not sure. Then you met up with your partner of the opposite sex who also had your animal card, and you swapped cards. So girls took the boys' blue animal card and vice versa. Actually, come to think of it, you had three duplicates of this card. Each one was one life. Boring rules, details, blah, blah, blah. Now the partners had to come up with a sound in which to call out to each other. A unique animal sound or mating cry. Brackets, that sounds creepier than it was. Once everyone had a sound to call out, the camp supervisors split the girls up, who all have the the blue boy animal cards, and vice versa. Each person was also handed a card that was divided into eight squares. Ah, there's a lot of rules in this. Um, basically, when the horn was blown, you had to run into the forest, find your partner by calling out your mating call. Once but, you found your partner, you swapped calls. This, yeah. Your objective, if you were a herbivore, was to run around the forest looking for hole punches. Each punch had a different shape and pattern, so you punch a card. You're trying to collect all eight food. The wolves, however, were running after the animals, trying to catch them. If they laid a hand on you, you had to stop and give up one of your life cards to the wolf. So not only are you running for your life, you're also trying to find food, and you're trying to find your mate. Lastly, there was a teacher walking around the woods who represented man at any time that you could approach and he would hold out his fists. Inside one fist was a hole punch uh, for food. Inside the other was nothing, meaning you had to give up a life card. This represented man being a hunter or a helper. Uh, There was a certain time limit. It was chaotic fun version of tag, essentially, but we couldn't stop talking about it all weekend. Wow. Thank you, Peter Ferguson. That does sound good. I thought it was going to be like a food chain thing of being like, you had to make your animal noise to find your animal partner, but then if another animal who was a bigger animal than you... Well, there are other wolves running around who try and eat you who are just listening out for bizarre animal... Co- but I like it. It's cool. It's interesting. The idea of making even a, like a bird sound that people can't tell is a human or not. Like a kind of... I can tell that's you. No, you, you can't. I mean, think not about like, it. With the just, reverb in a forest. Mm, not just that I can tell that's a human, Quinns. I can tell that's you. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, running around, mating, uh, food, man. He might punish you. He might help you. It's crazy. That does sound quite elaborate. I have like, not in a bad way. <laughs> I have nothing at all interesting to say about this game from a game design perspective. I just really liked it out of all the fight games we presented recently. I like that one. I like yeah. the idea of having multiple hole punches with different shapes and sizes. Yeah. Only in Canada. Well, if you've yeah. got a folk story um, that you want to send in, then you should do that because we're, we're collecting them, we're you, collating them. You categorically should. Uh, we've got a few uh, stockpiled up, um, but that's no reason you shouldn't send yours in because if it's better, I'll read it out instead. You can send that to the email address at the bottom of www.shutupandsitdown.com. Uh, it's hidden right there at the bottom. You have to scroll all the way down until the, squi- the site starts squeaking and straining. Um, <laughs> Say, stop! <laughs> it says, no, no! Uh, quite safe. It's probably safe, um, unless you're using uh, Apple Macs, in which case, don't do it. Um, and yeah, this has been Shut Up and Sit Down, the podcast where we talk about uh, 
games. We uh, we didn't get to talk sadly about uh, the Star Wars IP and how me and Matt have become increasingly obsessed with uh, a couple of Star Wars games despite not caring about Star Wars. I guess we, we could talk we about that. We were just talking about this. We could talk about that. Recording. We were, yeah. We could talk about that in the next podcast because I've actually f- arranged my first session. I'm going to be playing Imperial Assault. Not for a little while yet, because I'm a, a grown-up, which means I have constant responsibilities and laundry. <laughs> Endless. Uh, but I've managed Endless to laundry. rustle what? together a group of people to play uh, at the end, towards the end of May. So I'm assuming, because it's it's my house, I'm going to have to be the Imperials, but I think that will be fun. Oh, it's going to so, be so much uh, fun with your ATSTs, and you're going to be sent all the... Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, I've um, received word that I'm going to be getting the, Imperial, uh, the uh, Star Wars Armada expansions, and I'm so obsessed with that game going to be doing a really nice fancy uh, well not fancy a very lo-fi battle report um, so people can if they've read the Armada review they're still not willing to take the plunge for about uh, 60 quid or how much it costs then um, you can watch it in action with all the ships and see how much fun uh, me and my friend have what a battle report uh, well kind of it's basically a let's play but it'll be a it's basically a let's play it's all it I, is. I, like, I like the sound of that though uh, it'll be a battle report we'll be playing not Star Wars music because that'll infringe copyright, but fan made Star Wars music underneath gently for the whole thing. <laughs> music of an I'm inferior, music from inferior sci fi series that no one's done. That would be to funny, find the copyright we just need rights to, for. From like Kroll and uh, God knows. Space 1999. Yeah. I doubt if you go on YouTube and look for the theme tune of that, that they will, anyone will be claiming copyright. That's what I'm saying, yeah. I could be wrong, though. I could be wrong. And then just give people, as they watch the, uh, the Let's Play, just increasingly weird flashbacks to series they can't quite remember watching. <laughs> Uh, Paul, uh, Paul, is there anything uh, hot you've been playing recently that uh, we can tease for the next podcast? That we can tease? Um, did we talk about... All right, how do you say this? Is it Junta, Hunter? Hunter. It's, I think it's Junta. And if it's not, we can at least claim... If we say, like, Hunter... And it's not actually pronounced Junta? that way. We sound like idiots. But if it's Junta, if it's if we say Junta, then it's not pronounced that way. Then we just sound like we're reading it like it says on the box. Sound like pretentious people. Yeah, if we don't want to sound pretentious. We want to sound stupid. That's yeah. the shut up, sit down way. That is right. Yes. Uh, so no, but you actually played this one because it just got announced from AG that they're going to be bringing back this 1970 whatever board game. Yeah. Uh, and if a board game's been and around for that long, it's usually quite good. Often. Certainly the case with the Cosmic Encounter. Yeah, or uh, Settlers of which was the 90s so ignore me there you go stupid <laughs> not pretentious that's a long time now actually I keep forgetting that the 90s isn't just back around the corner no right it's now. actually if you do the maths so it's 2015 now so the 90s were 300 years ago um, God. that will make you feel old now it? I feel that's so old almost... I feel so old I need to lie down in a catacomb uh, me too uh, and maybe we can play a bit of King Ludwig there because that has a game with a whole catacombs mechanic uh, so Junta and Imperial Assault that's for next time for now we've been Shut Up and Sit Down you've been Matt Lees and Paul Dean and hello thank you so much for listening everybody and goodbye bye hello <laughs> thanks Paul 